Welcome to Home of the Brave. I believe that sometime in the future, sooner or later, people in the United States will admit and accept that we have lost the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and demand that our troops come back home. And I hope it happens soon before we start a new losing war with Iran. I know this is an un-American belief that we have lost the war, any war, because America can't lose. It's not possible. We have the biggest military in the history of the world, and God is on our side. He wouldn't let us lose. But when you look at the facts, the evidence on the ground, we don't control any of the ground in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we've lost the hearts and minds of the people who live there. After 19 years of war on terror, we've spent $7 trillion dollars to kill half a million people, most of them poor civilians, and yet there are only more terrorists who pose a greater threat. Using military force to fight terrorism has been like pouring gasoline on a fire. These are the facts, but we don't think about them because we're in deep denial. And when you're in denial, you keep making the same mistake over and over again. We need to change the way we respond to the threat of terrorism. And I think the change starts with talking and thinking hard about the things we've done, the mistakes we've made, the crimes we've committed. It's difficult to talk about these things, so I've been interviewing some experts, veterans of our wars who came home broken and traumatized and then went through a process of recovery from denial to acceptance, and then figuring out how to find meaning and purpose in their lives. Perhaps they can be our role models. The first interview I'm going to play is with Garrett Reppenhagen. He served as a sniper in Bakuba, Iraq in 2004, and is now the executive director of Veterans for Peace, an organization dedicated to finding alternatives to war. You know, I... I grew up, I was a high school dropout. I was, uh, you know, my father was a Vietnam War veteran, served 22 years. I was born on Fort Bliss Army Hospital. All my brothers were born on Army hospitals and different Army hospitals all throughout the world. And uh, my dad died of Agent Orange-related cancer when I was 13 years old, and it led me to drop out of high school. And uh, I was a punk rocker, and my political awareness stopped at, the lyrics of punk songs and I could certainly talk shit about the government around a kegger, but I didn't do anything about it. And, uh, I joined the military, uh, one month before September 11th. And, uh, because I was just in a tight spot economically and I was just at a dead end. And, uh, I had at that point, the only book novel I've read cover for cover was the Hobbit. So I didn't know a lot. And I went off to basic training. I was a cavalry scout. And uh, I went to Fort Knox, Kentucky, went through training, and ended up in Vilsack, Germany, and into Kosovo on a peacekeeping mission while the war in Afghanistan was going on. And uh, we started leading up towards the war in Iraq with talks of weapons of mass destruction and smoking guns. And uh, I had a chance to come home for a little while uh, to Colorado, Colorado Springs, and I visited a used bookstore, and I asked the, the owner of the bookstore who was there that day 
you know, can I get some books on Iraq? I'm probably going to go to war. I'm in, I'm a U.S. Army soldier. I'm going through sniper school, and uh, I'm probably going to get sent to Iraq, and I don't really know why. I don't know the history. I don't know the culture. I don't know anything about it. She gave me some great non-fictional books um, that I could read and history books and educate myself. And then she said, well, she had a used copy of Howard Zinn's People History of the United States. And she said, if you want to know why you're going to war with Iraq, you should read this book first. And that book blew my mind. Um, I was the, the jerk friend who uh, every time I talked to my buddies at the chow hall, you know, I'd be, did you know? And, you know, they finally were like, shut up, Reb, like, about your things. Um, but, it, you know, I had to go out and buy a dictionary to learn half the words in the book because I wasn't, I wasn't very literate. So eventually when I went to sniper school and went to Iraq, I think I, I went there starting to be a critical thinker. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily totally convinced that everything that I was reading, but I was able to be put in a spot where I could be, I could look at, the situation I was in with a little bit more awareness. And when you're put in a situation where you're taking other people's lives, um, you start to question what sort of real sacrifices you make. When you join the army and you or the, the military and you make an oath of enlistment, you are conscious about the fact that you might die. And uh, you start preparing yourself for that. But what you don't prepare yourself for is the loss of some of your best friends that you've ever made. And you're not prepared to, to how taking somebody's life is going to affect you. You're taught how to effectively take their life. But nobody teaches you this is what it's going to do to you. You're going you're gonna to wonder if you still have a soul. You're going to wonder, you know, is this sacrifice of your innocence worth it? You know, is your sanity worth it? And I, I was writing in a, uh, a blog. There was a punk band I knew called The Bouncing Souls, and I was, I was writing letters to them, and they asked me if they could publish my letters on, a, on their band website, calling it Letters from Iraq. And uh, I said yes, and I started getting fan mail from them, uh, f from their fans to me, saying, this is amazing, keep writing. So I kept writing, and my writing started transforming more and more against the mission without me consciously knowing it. Like, I could go back and read the letters and see, like, each letter kind of progressing of my distaste and dislike for the mission in Iraq to the point where I, I, I started my own blog called Fight to Survive, which is now considered an anti-war blog, which it didn't start as. And uh, eventually I was called into my commander's office because they realized I was, I was writing this stuff and I started getting investigated for op breaking operational security and espionage because of what I was writing. Um, I, I had commanders telling me that if they had my way, they would take me out into the desert and shoot me themselves. Because what do you say that you think upset them to say that? I was telling the truth about the war. Um, I was I was highlighting situations that I was in of soldiers that um, through accidents drowned, uh, fratricide incidents where we killed Iraqi army and, and National Guard uh, or Iraqi army and Iraqi policemen accidentally and, and we lit them up, uh, civilian casualties uh, from when we got hit by IEDs and what we called porcupine and just shot everywhere. Um, so if, if you were there when the IED struck that you were going to be killed because we just, we just laid down fire. 
um, you know, uh, apartment buildings that we shot up where we would get, we would get, uh, an AK 47 shooting from a third story apartment window. And we just light up the entire apartment complex, uh, to get that one dude with like women and children in, in the apartment complex. So I was writing these truths and in my personal reflections of them and how, how much I hated it. Um, were you ostracized over there? Yes. Yeah. Life became very complicated for me. While I was under investigation, I couldn't be, I couldn't, they couldn't touch me for that until the investigation was complete, but I had to have my uniform was perfect every day. Um, I couldn't be late for anything because anytime I had the slightest little infraction, um, I'd be punished. I'd be out filling sandbags, doing push-ups till I threw up, uh, uh, pulled off other missions, forced to do endless guard duty and gate guard duty. Um, watching Iraqis, laborers under the point of my weapon uh, were the kind of things that I had to do if I was, I was caught doing any little, little issue. And I, I, was, I just kept writing. Um, you know, I'd, I'd pass guys in, on base that would slam their fists into their palms like they wanted to kick my ass, and then one dude would kind of give me an undercover peace sign, you know, because he, did, he didn't have the courage or the want to act but he knew I was and I knew I was this voice to this other population of of service members who hated what they were doing were looking a way out but like me were too scared to to quit you know and that's one of the things that bothers me is that I'd never had the courage to to just to go AWOL or just deny uh and refuse orders I I kept on my sniper missions months after I knew almost solidly in my mind that I was doing the wrong thing and I was still taking people's lives for the U.S. government. You know, I came home and I struggled for years with moral injury because of the guilt of not witnessing trauma or being the victim of trauma because I was the perpetrator of trauma on somebody else. And all that violence, um, you know, who holds the debt for that? And forever, I just carried it upon myself as a sniper. I carried it upon me. And, um, you know, that transformation, you know, it, it's hard. I think a lot of service members don't want to come to terms with that because the last shred of sanity that they have is veiled by the protection of the myth of the war, that this, it's noble and it's right. And if that's stripped away, then they're left with this immense amount of horrible, you know, these horrible feelings and thoughts. Like if only I had some justification, like I uh, liberated some Nazi concentration camp to make this okay. And I have, I have none of that because there's moral ambiguity of the war and because there's no justification. Look at the Afghanistan papers that just broke, you know. Here's, here's a, a long chain of proof. This is a waste. Um, you're wasting people's lives that, that are U.S. service members. You're wasting U.S. tax dollars, and, and you're taking the lives and destroying a country of people, and uh, it was mismanaged, uh, misinformed, misguided, and nobody's taking accountability for that, apologizing or, or taking personal responsibility for this in the entire chain of command or the political leadership. So, you know, and we know Iraq was the same way. You mentioned Abu Ghraib, and um, when, uh, 
we used to we used to visit this house in Iraq, and uh, there was a truck driver uh, who lost their big rig, was destroyed during the initial invasion by American forces, and uh, he lost his wife, and he started taking in orphaned kids basically from the neighborhoods. Everybody who lost their parents, he just started taking in. He didn't have a job. You know, but he was trying to provide for this this huge host of kids the best he could. So we used to drive by all the time in our four Humvees and drop off a case of MREs, meals ready to eat, modern day rations. And we'd drop off a box and the kids would run up to the truck and they'd tear open the box and tear open the packages. And, uh, you know, the guy would come out and we'd talk to the dude for a while and, uh, you know, play with the kids. And it was kind of a remote area. So we knew that we could kind of let down our guard a little bit play soccer with them, have fun. When Abu Ghraib, uh, when the news of Abu Ghraib broke, uh, it was a few days later and we drove by, uh, we drove by the house and all the kids came running up and grabbed the MREs. And one of them, the first one that got inside with an MRE came out right away with the guy holding him by the ear and he had the MRE in his hand and he brought the kid back and he told the kid to give the MRE back. And the guy said, no more. And we were like, why? He said, Abu Ghraib. We're like, okay. So, you know, those those little things that happen, you know, those little moments that just kind of add up to this uh, horrible distaste, it transformed me. And I was angry. You know, the, the VA is never going to develop a drug, like a pill to give you, to cure the fact that you were betrayed by your own nation. But really, I didn't. You know, I was putting a lot of stuff on myself personally over what I did in Iraq. I didn't even have a term for moral injury. I came home and I was being kicked out of uh, veteran uh, veteran hospital uh, peer support circles for PTSD because I was getting too political. But in, in essence, my mental health was being impacted because what I did was in an illegitimate war. And the immoral things that I had done had no justification, and that impacted my mental health. And if I couldn't talk about it in a VA circle, then I found my fellow veterans in the streets with, with the peace movement yelling about it in the streets. I, I found somebody who taught uh, PITS, perpetrator-induced trauma syndrome, in a prison for murderers and rapists, and her system started to help me, and that's the first time I realized that what I had was different than just post-traumatic stress disorder. You met someone out on the street who I'm, worked on it? A, a friend of a friend introduced me to a person who went into prison systems and helped prisoners in this program called PITS, Perpetrator-Induced Trauma Syndrome, uh, to help them uh, start to cope with the harm and the, the damage they've done to other people. And it's about um, trying to forgive yourself. Uh, for what you had done, understanding that you're also put in the situation to do bad things because of the social systems and the institutions around you. And you certainly take personal blame in the process, but you also realize that, you know, I, I was a sniper in Iraq, but ultimately I had to realize that I wasn't, I wasn't the person pulling the trigger. My democracy pulled the trigger. My politicians pulled, pointed the gun and pointed that trigger. And I was the bullet coming out of the weapon, going through guts and brains. And the crazy thing is, I'm a walking, talking bullet. So I got up afterwards and came home. And I said, hey, look what I just did. 
you know? And I got big parades, and everybody bought me beers, and I got cheap tickets to the ball games because I was a veteran and to the movies. But I felt horrible because I wasn't being punished for the crimes I thought I committed. So I punished myself. I started hurting myself because I, I could never find happiness. And when I found happiness, I, I just self-destructed and destroyed it. So, so I went in periods of whenever I was feeling good, I'd have huge downs. And uh, it just started to become a, a bad spiral. You know, I think there's a difference between guilt and shame. I think that, I think guilt, you can be guilty of an action that you do, right? And that you're guilty. And that's just a fact, right? Um, but shame is a character trait. It's like a value you put on yourself, right? And once you become a shameful person, it's hard to get out of it. You know, veterans, the, the VA has a veteran hotline where if you're suicidal, just call this hotline. But if you're so convinced that, that you're just a shameful person, that's not something that's going to change. That means that counter after encounter, you're going to do a shameful thing, and that's just who you are. So they can give you a hotline to say that you can change the weather if you call this number, but everybody knows you're not going to change the weather. So why the fuck would I call this hotline if I think I'm going to commit suicide? I want to commit suicide because I'm a shameful person, and I can't call this number and change that. So... You know, I think that that perpetrator-induced trauma syndrome is something about uh, is about that guilt, that responsibility that you have um, has to change. And you know, I feel like when I'm speaking out, I'm not I'm not Catholic, but um, I think there's some really good uh, there's some really good rituals in the faith that that have some application. And when I speak out, I feel like I'm confessing to the world, right? And when I'm working on peace, I feel like I'm finding that atonement. And, uh, you know, I think that there's something to that. And I had to go through a struggle. I had to be punished. And I had to punish myself to feel like I, I was worthy of, of just having the most simple pleasures of life, like being loved by another person, having a friend. But when I started connecting with the peace movement and actually organizing... I started realizing that I was serving humanity again and I was doing something from stopping somebody like me to go through that process, you know, and follow my footsteps. And that began to heal me, like repurposing myself, finding new identity and really doing good was my atonement that I needed. Those things started to repair and I was surrounded by a community of people that I loved and loved me. And uh, soon I got to a point where I could have a family and I could, I, could, I could accept other people's love again. But it's still a struggle. And I think, we, we said it before, but I think society is going through a lot of moral injury itself. And the guilt of, of you know, how much am I sacrificing to stop the things that I don't like in the world, I think is really palpable to a lot of individuals. But Whether you know, they were in the military or not. Right. Yeah, I think it's a society issue that we have do you think that there's an analogy from this personal recovery from traumatic events to the country or their culture as a whole well i think you see i think you see cultures all over the planet that when they come together and heal it's part of a reconciliation process and i think we're still a long ways from that but 
I think it's going to eventually be needed to be done. And I, do, I don't know how America reconciles themselves to basically the rest of the planet. Um, but for what we've done, yeah, for the for the constant war, for the um, the global oppression, um, the imperialism, the attacks, the um, I mean, our our economic systems that we enforce, the exploitation we do um, is uh, is pretty severe. And it always always has some sort of element uh, that connects to war. You know, it it takes more work than these pop up uh, protests that you see out there. You know, a call to take the streets one day, and you show up with your sign, and and you march, and you go home, and that's it. Organizing is involved in building campaigns, and building a movement, and transferring power, um, building assets. And, and growing as a collective and that's that's a lot of hard work and um, you know it's organizations out there like Veterans for Peace and a lot of other organizations that are making sure that that continues that there's follow up to that and that there's a place to house all, all that power transfer so the people can, can hold it and control it and uh, you know that's the only way we can fight these Lockheed Martins and these Northrop Grumman's and you know that's that's the only way we can we can battle that sort of money the finances that are put into war lobbying and uh, you know advertisements at football games and you know I I get the arguments that yeah maybe we all don't deserve health care or we don't deserve housing or we don't deserve an education maybe everybody doesn't but when you see what the money's spent on and that's overinflated military spending on a massive budget that's wasted constantly and misused and not making our country safer, that it's becoming more dangerous to be an American because of our, our aggression and oppression overseas and the exploitation of other people across the, across the world, then that, that is immensely frustrating to hear that we don't deserve or can't afford uh, some sort of universal health care or universal education systems, or everybody doesn't deserve housing because they're lazy, right? Well, I think it's it's time that, you know, I woke up from the betrayal of the American myth that I was I was fed to join the military service and go through all that crap. It's time every American wakes up to the betrayal of that social contract. I have a five-year-old son named Ocean, and... Uh, you know, the challenges that he's going to face with, uh, you know, the loss of our equator zone, um, you know, where it becomes uninhabitable, populations moving away from uh, areas that live near the sea because of sea seawater rising, uh, famines, uh, new diseases, uh, droughts, uh, wildfires like you see in the Amazon and, and in Australia. These things are going to become more common and you're going to have populations moving into areas that are ethnically different, uh, religiously different than they are. Um, some of these places have nuclear weapons. Um, so the world's getting to a much more dangerous place. And if we don't find peace in ourselves and peace in our communities soon, um, you know, it, we're going to be in a very severe situation. And, you know, we're seeing more people just kind of just sick of this. And we got to change now because... I think uh, the country is, is being polarized and uh, angry at each other. And uh, we're not talking about how much we have in common and how much we, we're being hurt by these effects. 
And I think if you don't get involved in service, I see veterans healing through uh, community service, just getting out in their neighborhood, working in a soup kitchen, helping, helping their neighbors. Um, if they dedicate themselves to things like that, I think they can heal. My service is trying to end war. I'd like to thank Garrett Reppenhagen for talking to me, talking to us. He works for Veterans for Peace, and you can find a link to their website on our website, homebrave.com. I have some more interviews with veterans, and I'll put them up as soon as I get them edited. Thanks very much for your support. Home of the Brave survives on listener contributions. This means a lot to me because I don't have to do commercials or submit my ideas for stories to a corporate entity. A corporate entity wouldn't okay stories like this. The corporate media is not going to help us stop going to war. If we're going to change, it'll come from the bottom up rather than from the top down. So thank you very much for your support, and thanks for listening.